0: You're listening to Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM with me, Naomi Isaac, and me, Kalia Harris, and me, Chelsea hates wise on the week of Wednesday, March 3rd, 2021. This week, we start off Women's History Month with recognizing the mothers of Gynecology, Anarcha, Lucy, and Betsy, the enslaved African women whose suffering and survival served as a fundamental part of reproductive medical science. Stay tuned as we run back one of our favorite episodes this week on Race Capital, later on in the show. To get us started, we dive straight into our Race Capital reframe. Let's get into this week's local news. In this week's Eviction Watch, there are 26 unlawful
1: detainers on the books. A reminder to our listeners that unlawful detainers are the first step that a landlord takes to evict a tenant. We will keep reporting these numbers. Last Wednesday, the City of Richmond's Department of Public Works, with an escort from the RPD, destroyed the belongings of houseless people living around the Coliseum with a crane. While most of the houseless folks went to get breakfast and find a bathroom, they came back to find their items completely destroyed. The department refused to give them a reason for the removal. Quote, they didn't give no one any warning. They just scooped everything up and went away, end quote. Said David G, a houseless person who was sleeping at the Coliseum that morning to Dogwood News. So we saw this all over social media. I know Sister Rhonda was really alerting folks as to what was going on and it was just Just for me, it was hard to see what happened.
0: And there were a lot of reports that this removal was taking place because President Biden's wife, Joe Biden, was set to speak in Richmond later that afternoon. So I think that's just an important point to note.
1: Yeah, Stoney tried to call it social media conspiracy theories.
2: Conspiracy. And I know that LeVar Stoney is also telling reporters that there were complaints around the smell and the sight of the Coliseum and that is why they sent the cleanup but I know that we've talked about it before in a previous Race Capital episode, but continuing to bring some light on the Greater Richmond Continuum of Care, who is in charge of the MOU and the overall coordination of the houseless community in the region. And they are the people that literally have the contract with Homeward. So as folks are talking about houselessness and Homeward and Greater Richmond Continuum of Care, we will continue to keep watch
1: yeah and this news came as red, who who was a member of the houseless community in Richmond, passed away last week. And so it was just like one blow after another, and I'm just getting to the point where I'm ready for our city and our state and our country to provide housing to people
0: and also, I would just want to abolish this concept of cleaning up the streets. We aren't cleaning up the streets by displacing and disposing of people. They're actually just killing folks. Moving into more statewide news on Monday. Governor Northam rolled back several COVID-19 restrictions across the Commonwealth. These changes included ending January's curfew, allowing outdoor venues to host events with up to a thousand people, allowing personal outdoor gatherings to reach a maximum of 25 people, and even opening overnight summer camps starting May 1st. The changes come despite the Biden administration's COVID task forces warnings that states should not begin to loosen COVID restrictions as new variants continue to emerge. Just last month, the Center For Disease Control and Prevention's Director Rachel Walensky said during a press briefing, "quote We have yet to control this pandemic. We really need to keep all of the mitigation measures at play here if we're really going to get control." End quote. She urged state and local officials to keep their guard up, and that is the opposite of what we are doing here in Virginia.
1: Our governor is a doctor,
2: and we're ignoring medical advice, scientific advice. I didn't
0: even know that this had happened. They might as well just go on and revoke that medical license from him now. Because what use is it serving? From the yearbook to the COVID, from
2: ignoring COVID restrictions.
1: First, do no harm for who? Well, y'all, on Saturday, Adam Oaks, a 19-year-old VCU student from Loudoun County, died after a Delta Chi fraternity rush event. The family says that they were told by pledges who attended the party that Oaks drank a large bottle of Jack Daniels whiskey in an hour as a part of an initiation process and then passed out. Quote, they checked in on him at midnight. He was breathing and okay and on his side. Then when they woke up, they found him face down on the couch and then they rolled him over. Half of his face was purple, half was not, end quote. The VCU Delta Chi chapter has since been suspended but the fatal hazing event has sparked outrage among students and community members with calls arising for VCU to abolish all Greek life on its campus.
0: While we're on the topic of educational institutions, starting next month on April 12th, RPS will allow at least 800 students to return to their school buildings for in-person classes. According to a plan approved by the Richmond School Board on Monday night in a 6-2 vote, the city will allow 300 high-needs and English-learning elementary schoolers to return to face-to-face instruction. The implementation will happen in three parts between July 2021 and March 2022. So again, it sounds like we are going against medical advice, scientific advice. And I think they're reopening under the campaign hashtag, reopen with love. No. Which I find yes, which no. I find incredibly, incredibly disrespectful because if they love their students, they would not be putting them at su- in such a high-risk situation. And I the justification is basically that they see the impact that virtual learning is having on students, but instead of just fixing their methods and their techniques and just adjusting to the needs of pandemic control, they're giving up and basically just forcing kids to go back to school as as quick as possible. When it comes to just meeting access needs, the concern should always be with the system and the institution, how they can reorient themselves. So this is just really concerning. And again, just treating kids and children and students like they're disposable.
2: If we loved them, We also wouldn't be getting them back into these classrooms in time for testing. That's what I'm also seeing the timeline here, right, is that we didn't cancel SOL testing. They're still having the testing for English learners. Nomi, do you know anything if all of the adults in the school have been properly vaccinated?
0: I actually don't know. I did see something earlier that was saying that teachers will be on the list to be vaccinated, but I don't know for sure. Regardless of if teachers are vaccinated, that doesn't take away the risk of parents who might not be vaccinated and the children coming from unvaccinated homes into this school space with so many with hundreds of students and teachers and potentially exposing them like it just is not going to work out the way that they're presenting it.
1: Yeah, I mean, we know that parents have to work. Caregivers have to work. And unless the government is willing to pay folks to stay home, and allow them to have the resources they need for virtual school, then we're not actually going to mitigate the virus and its spread in schools. And so I understand that RPS is making hard decisions based on what it seems like the students need, but that doesn't mean that we can ignore all of the studies, right, that we just talked about last week about COVID in schools.
0: Well, y'all, devastating news has come out of the Goochland Commonwealth's Attorney's Office this past week after the grand jury hearing on the shooting of 18-year-old Xavier Hill. Last Friday night, jury members reached a unanimous decision concluding that, quote, the actions of the VSP officers were justified in the exercise of deadly force, end quote. According to their statement, they found that the criminal charges against the two Virginia state police troopers involved were not warranted. The Goochling Commonwealth's attorney office has since released the dashcam footage of the shooting, as well as other details related to Xavier's death. And I just want to say, if anyone has seen the video, which I don't believe is necessary, but if you, if you want to look at it, it's pretty heartbreaking because um, the traffic stop just looks like so many other deaths that we've seen that have come back with rulings that have been found unjustified. And so just just knowing that they watched that video and found no fault whatsoever with the officer's actions is completely soul-crushing, for me at least. I had to like sit and reflect for maybe a couple of hours after after hearing that news.
1: And this is the problem with grand juries, with our so-called criminal justice system, And it's part of the reason why, you know, we know that that system won't be able to bring justice to the community that has lost a young Black person. And I I hope that we can all come together as a community to continue to demand the overall defunding of this police department that is allowed to keep killing Black people without any type of reprimand.
2: And what I'm noticing is that with these videos, and we've even been reported on this before, I believe, is that law enforcement is starting to learn how to drown out any audio that would be beneficial for us. And they're learning at the distances that are actually where you can recognize anything that's going on in the video. I saw the video of Xavier Hill's execution, unfortunately, and it was too blurry. It happened too quickly. And the officers were yelling too loudly to even hear what this young man was trying to say. It sounded pretty calm. And as Nomi said, it it was all too familiar of after watching it, not understanding how it ended in such a way.
0: And I also just believe if the events happen too quickly for us to process while watching it, I can only imagine how quickly it happened for Xavier to process as they're giving him conflicting demands as to what he should be doing with his hand. Yeah, I just can only imagine how confusing that would be to someone in the moment when you have three officers shouting at you to do something, you don't know which something you should be complying to it.
1: Yeah, my question to the listeners and to people who are hearing this coverage of Xavier Hill's murder, who are a witness and bearing witness to this violence, is what are we going to do? How do we intend to seek any semblance of justice for Xavier Hill's family? We know we can't bring him back, but at this point, the dash cam is released. We've seen what there is to see. I don't know how much more folks need to see, but his family has been taken to the streets since this happened. And so I'm asking everyone, what does it look like for us to show up for that family in this time?
2: After almost three years of fighting for her freedom, Abby Aravallo, a Honduran mother who fled due to domestic violence, has finally granted a one-year stay of removal by ICE. Abby's lawyer says that they were continued to pursue her legal options as a free woman after spending years living in the basement of the First Unitarian Universalist Church. We're so incredibly happy for Abby.
0: Also just want to remind folks to continue to stay present in her struggle because this is just a one-year stay of removal and we don't know what's going to happen after that stay uh, is over. So just stay present.
1: Yeah, I began crying immediately as I saw this news on my timeline.
0: The feeling of
1: just seeing one person freed. I remember meeting Abby in the basement of the church when we were doing immigrant justice trainings a couple years ago. And to hear her story then and now to see that she's finally able to leave that church, I know a lot of people in Richmond are rejoicing to hear that news. So Abby, we just send you our congratulations from race capital.
0: Well, out of the General Assembly, lawmakers have finally passed a bill that will ban the use of the Gay Panic Defense, which is a recognized legal strategy that allows defendants to justify murder and or violence against LGBTQIA folks. The defense is defined by the LGBT bar as, quote, a legal strategy which asks a jury to find that a victim's sexual orientation or gender identity is to blame for the defendant's violent reaction, including murder end quote. The bill now awaits Governor Northam's signature. And all I just want to say is that this did not pass unanimously. And I find that disgusting.
2: I mean, this is just one of the many laws that are ridiculous that are still in the Virginia code that we have to go through y'all and are continuing to criminalize people already living on the margins. Speaking of the General Assembly, y'all that marijuana bill. So the actual bill that came out and is on the way to the governor produced a big win for business per usual here in the Commonwealth. The Virginia General Assembly took both the House and Senate bill to conference and had days of secret debates and came out with the decision to enact the Cannabis Control Authority and tell the people of Virginia to come back next year. That's right. The boys in business got the go ahead. While constituents are still left in the dark about how the newest crimes in Virginia, quote, legalization, end quote, will impact them day to day. The worst part is that this bill was sold by the administration to be written as prioritizing racial equity. And even after the FOIA information to show that over 4,500 people over half of them Black, were still catching marijuana possession cases. The administration didn't care. The legislators didn't care. Eliminating the racial disparities of law enforcement by legalization was literally laughed at by Leader Herring on the floor this past weekend, as justice was left on the table and Virginia legislators gave the green flag for corporate cannabis.
0: So Chelsea, just tell us what's up with the way that they legislated the business side of cannabis. So I will say that there were some wins as far
2: as the regulatory model. Well, we did get some wins because the two-year work that started with marijuana justice and ACLU with the JLARC study, Senator Jennifer McClellan was able to carry this. And if you've been watching, you've been able to see how important the JLARC study has been this year, not just to equity, but to the Senate particularly, calling on the JLARC experts many of times. Within that, the advocates pulled out specific equity components, such as the independent candidate agency that we got banning vertical integration, except for the medical, that's going to have to pay $1 million into the social equity incubator loan fund. And we got a new tier of business licenses included called the micro businesses license that can vertically integrate. And those are really cool because that's like you grow it in your house, you process in your house, you make the edibles in your house and you sell them at a vendor. That is a full micro business license, full vertical integration right there. Boom, equity.
1: Yes.
2: Right. So, when people are talking about like what is a micro cannabis license? It's that sort of license, someone that maybe even a, a food truck, maybe a vending machine. I mean, these are the types of things that we can get really creative about right now with this type of opportunity. And we're really excited to have brought that to the Virginia General Assembly. But a lot of the parts about the regulation, Nomi and Kalia, particularly even with some of the equity components, just like with the criminal justice parts, the legislators told us to come back next year. So the only thing we really know for sure is that the Virginia Cannabis Control Authority is on its way. Marijuana Justice will be doing a wrap up this Friday with Canna Hour with New Jersey Canna star Jessica Gonzalez. They're an amazing cannabis lawyer up there. And then March 11th, Marijuana Justice is also working with the legislative wrap up with Justice Forward. And a really cool opportunity on March 17th, the National Cannabis Industry Association is hosting a panel called No Time to Waste, putting equity first in the mid-Atlantic region and Marijuana Justice and myself are really excited to be part of that. So a lot to continue to talk about because we are going to keep pushing the governor on this repeal right now, July 1, because the disparities are still happening, y'all. If 4,500 people were impacted, that means about 36,000 people are going to be impacted by 2024,
0: I know you touched on the, the criminal parts of the bill still needing a lot of work. And I know a question that's been on a lot of folks' mind, including mine, is where expungements fall in this. That's a really great question. So
2: I will say number one is that we had some historic legislation passing in the record ceiling policy lane. Expungement is a very interesting word. I will call it record sealing because the cops are still going to be able to see our records, y'all. Okay the automatic, the petition, it's all still gonna be able to be seen. So that's gonna be really important. Now, sealing records is important to collateral consequences, right? For your job, for your housing, for your employment. But particularly what you're talking about, Naomi, is that there will be certain misdemeanors that will be up for automatic record sealing this coming July due to the overall bill that happened with record sealing. But because legalization was pushed until 2024, and we're still talking about these criminal penalties, there are still people right now that could be caught up in the next three years that get a felony charge that will then have to petition in 2024, where if they had gotten the same crime a year or two later in 2025, it'll be a civil penalty. So two pounds right now could get you a felony. Well, in 2025, it's going to be a civil penalty. And so that means that there's still going to be people caught up, right? Even, even beyond that. So as far as your expungement, if you have a misdemeanor, that means that you're very eligible for the automatic record sealing. If it is a felony, that means you have to wait and for everything, you have to wait until everything, time served, fees paid, but for a felony, you have to wait up to 10 years and then you get to petition the court. So again, for the people that get caught up in the next three years and then have to wait 10 years, what?
0: Yeah, it's, it's obvious that the work in the legislature is not done. So we'll all definitely have to keep an eye out on what is happening with cannabis and support the advocates that are constantly redirecting the conversation.
1: And for our listeners, we do have our Refer Revolution series that is available online that has covered the entire legalization fight throughout the General Assembly this year. So be sure to check out those historical archives. Well, the Richmond Times Dispatch is reporting that six casino developers have submitted proposals to the city to be the, quote, preferred candidate for a casino resort end quote. City council will eventually select a preferred operator before it goes to voters for a referendum. One of the contenders is Golden Nugget, which wants to build a $400 million casino resort. Richmond is one of five cities in the Commonwealth to allow legal casino gambling.
2: Have we even passed this whole thing yet? I thought we still had to vote on this.
1: Yeah, so it has to go to a referendum.
2: It's wild to me. We already got RFPs for whole casinos and the people haven't even voted on this yet
1: yeah yeah so the council will select the operator before it goes to a referendum
0: the transparency with business interactions in richmond is constantly so de- I don't even know. We're always in the dark when it comes to business interactions, when it comes to the city of Richmond. We never know what's going on. There's never enough information. There's never enough public input. They truly don't care about what we have to say.
1: And I just don't understand why we're, first of all, we're one of the only cities in the state that uses this wealth extraction model like a casino resort. Why are we taking our energy and putting it into taking more money from oftentimes some of our most marginalized people in the city to then put it back into the city. I'm putting that in air quotes for our listeners because that money should already stay in our pockets and they should be investing more money into the things that we need instead of allowing folks to come here, spend hundreds of millions of dollars to invest in a development project that is designed to take money out of the pockets of our residents. Where's the sense?
0: Especially when it comes to legislating behavior, gambling is truly an addiction, whereas things like marijuana, it's, it's taking us years upon years to upon years to get them to, to legalize. So we see well, where the priorities lay.
2: It makes sense to me because... We're legalizing gambling just the way we are marijuana now and the way that it benefits corporations and exploits people, literally extracts people from our homes and our resources.
0: So sounds like good old Virginia to me. In more statewide news, George Mason University announced late last week that it has picked a team of developers to manage the construction of the Amazon-induced expansion of its Arlington campus. The university, which is the top recipient of funding from the Koch brothers in the nation, announced its plans to begin exclusive negotiations with a team led by Edgemore Infrastructure and Real Estate and Harrison Street, which are being called, quote, Mason Innovation Partners, end quote. If the negotiations succeed, the team will build a new building on the Arlington campus to house the university's new Institute for Digital Innovation and School of Computing, which was pitched as a part of the state's bid to win Amazon's new headquarters.
1: So, as a two time alum of George Mason, I have to say that we used to have a joke when I was on campus because our tagline was Mason, where innovation is tradition. And we would switch it and say, Mason where construction is tradition. So clearly the tradition is continuing on in Arlington where rates of rent are already so incredibly high. A large immigrant community in Arlington. So they're creating this huge state-of-the-art building that is basically an Amazon school for students to come in and then they're going to need more housing in Arlington, the parking is going to be more packed. Why would George Mason care? Because they're getting so much money from Amazon. So they're not helping us pay for our student debt that we all acquired on their dime, but they are damn sure signing contracts with Amazon to make sure that they're able to build more and more buildings as the student dorms continue to crumble in the center of campus as they have been for years.
0: And we talk a lot on this show about the way that VCU continues to gentrify and displace community members. And I think it's important to touch on the fact that in NOVA, as you said, Kalia, the migrant community has been speaking out against Amazon expansion for years. So these negotiations will definitely impact Black and Brown and Indigenous people in NOVA. And we all need to continue to keep an eye out on GMU and their partnerships, Amazon, and the ways that these are, again, affecting our community members
1: where are the scholarships for black students let's see it george mason let's see it
2: and why don't i go ahead and uh lift up a piece by thomas foster about virginia portion of amazon's hq2 should acknowledge what lies beneath which is a former plantation yeah amazon building on a former plantation really just does make all the sense in the world it really can't get
1: worse But I mean, Mason already has a whole museum property that is a plantation called Gunston Hall, where they host celebratory dinners that reenact the old days. So am I surprised? Absolutely not. George Mason was a slave owner. Well, y'all, moving on to national news. We'll begin with our COVID watch. The nation has seen over 29 million cases of COVID-19 with 529,214 total deaths. In Virginia, there have been over 578,000 total cases, and our death count, y'all, has climbed to 8,943 total deaths in the Commonwealth. At this rate, we will be reporting 10,000 deaths here in Virginia very soon. In other news, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has been authorized for use in the United States and is being shipped to states for use. President Biden is now claiming that the United States should have enough vaccine supply to vaccinate every adult in the country by May.
0: Yeah, my only thought is, who are they considering in this demographic? Are they accounting for undocumented folks? Are they accounting for incarcerated folks, houseless folks? And then what about the kids So I have a lot of questions when it comes to that statement. But as the vaccine rollout expands in the U.S., many advocates are concerned about the growing racial gap in vaccinations. On Democracy Now!, Dr. Oni Blackstock, who is a primary care physician, argued that age cutoffs should be lowered or removed for Black people in order to speed up vaccinations. This comes as data shows that Black people in the U.S. are twice as likely to die from COVID-19 than white people and are also dying at rates similar to white Americans who are 10 years older. Blackstock argues that by removing fixed age cutoffs, we can take into account structural racism and the pandemic's toll on Black life expectancy. Because of the way that
1: the data and statistics are coming out just so often, I think the most common thing that I'm seeing is that we are more likely to die, more likely to get the virus. We're at more risk. And so that's something that not only health justice, but racial justice advocates as a whole need to see the intersectionality and us losing our lives as younger people than white folks that are older and dying from this virus. That's our futures that are being lost. And it has also been revealed that 45 and his wife, who continually minimized the risks of COVID-19 and ridiculed life-saving precautions, were vaccinated secretly back in January before he left office. This news comes after Trump's recent speech at the Conservative Political Action Committee, where he encouraged his supporters to get vaccinated. Y'all, he encouraged his supporters to get vaccinated, saying, quote, how unpainful the vaccine shot is, so everybody go
0: get your shot, end quote. Somebody come get your mans. I love how unquestioning his supporters continue to be. They ain't got no questions. They ain't got no need for accountability. Like in seriousness, he truly killed several people with his actions. And several of his supporters have been impacted by that advice that he gave them, that poor advice that he gave them. And like no one has any questions, no call for accountability from this man. No one. This man ran the Republican Party and we still have Democrats
2: saying we need a Republican Party. Right. We're still having Democrats saying we need to unify with these people. And this is still the base of this party. Right. Like he's still leading the Republican
0: Party. Like this seems like an impeachable offense in some capacity, lying to the public while also not heeding to your own advice because you know that the advice that you gave is wrong and will kill you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We already know the timeline. Trump knew how serious this virus was. He downplayed it. He then downplayed the effectiveness of a lot of the things, whether it was the virus itself, the vaccine, he slowed down the nation's ability to get the vaccine. And now we're sitting at maybe having enough by May for some of the adults
2: And continuing on about the impacts, the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated the abortion crisis in the United States. The Nation reports that several states have tried to use COVID as a pretext for banning abortion as a non-essential service under the guise of, quote, preserving personal protective equipment, end quote. In the wake of the confirmation hearing of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, The Roe v. Wade decision in legality of abortion in the United States is in greater peril than ever before, y'all.
1: Well, supporters of Black liberationist freedom fighter, political prisoner, and journalist Mamia Abu-Jamal gathered in Philadelphia this weekend to demand that the medically vulnerable 66-year-old is released from prison after the news that he is experiencing symptoms of COVID-19.
0: I feel like this is my kinship and I, I really feel for him after, you know, he's written so many books, So many interviews that have just been so helpful to Black liberation work. You know, they elected a progressive prosecutor, quote unquote, in Philadelphia. And a lot of folks thought that he would have the willpower, Larry Krasner, to release Mumia. But he has come out basically saying that, you know, the case stands as it stands and they'll look further as they need to with no urgency for action. And so folks in Philly have really been organizing to support Mumia and encourage folks to continue to write him. I appreciate that you
2: brought that up, though, Nomi, because I know even here in Richmond, we have someone that stepped up as a progressive prosecutor. And it is these types of looking back cases that will you bring us justice? And they just say, well, what is done is done.
0: Right. Because saying you're a progressive prosecutor is basically like saying you're a progressive cop, which we know does not exist and still commits violence against people every single day. Moving into other national news, last week, an environmental group known as PEER or Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility submitted a complaint to the EPA Inspector General's office accusing senior managers at the agency's Office of Pesticide Programs of knowingly ignoring studies that demonstrate that pesticides such as telone cause cancer. According to The Intercept, in 1985, the National Toxicology Program found, quote, clear evidence, end quote, of the chemical's carcinogenicity and rats and mice when the animals contracted lung and bladder tumors after exposure to the pesticide. Last February, the EPA's Human Health Risk Assessment of Telone downgraded the pesticide's cancer rating despite the fact that studies have shown that exposure to 1,3-D, which is the main component of Telone, has been linked to pancreatic cancer deaths in agricultural communities. Exposures to the chemical can cause lung irritation, coughing, and difficulty breathing. I just have to say this is why I had to leave law Larger environmental justice movement work in Richmond, especially, but the Commonwealth as a whole, because a lot of the focus completely ignores the impact that uh, environmental dangers pose on the human workers when it comes to agriculture, farming, that we know that these issues specifically impact migrant communities and Black and Indigenous people. So when it comes to environmental justice, a lot of people just They want to ban plastic, you know, they want to save the fish, but they don't actually take into account any of the violence that's happening on humans here.
2: That's not like marijuana again. Everybody Mm. wants to free the plant, but not
0: the people. Precisely. As workers across the world struggle to cope with the strains of corporate labor during the pandemic, employees at an Amazon fulfillment center in Las Vegas are now grieving the loss of a fellow worker after he fell to his death from the fourth level of the Nevada warehouse and what employees believe to have been a suicide. Workers are now accusing the company of covering up the tragic details of the death. And as a multitude of workers took to social media to express their grief and condolences, one employee posted on a Reddit thread, quote, Let me tell you something. Amazon might sit there and claim mental illnesses for liability, but you do not have to be already dealing with issues for Amazon to break you mentally, end quote. And this is not the only instance of mental health crisis Amazon has dealt with in recent history. In fact, in 2019, an investigative report conducted by the Daily Beast found that between October 2013 and October 2018, across 46 Amazon warehouse sites, emergency workers were summoned at least 189 times for suicide attempts, suicidal thoughts, and other mental health episodes.
1: And I just wanted to remind folks that a Black woman named Pashawn Brown did die, an Amazon worker here in Virginia, just in January. We really have to watch out for these deaths that are related to Amazon. She just had a headache at work and went home and died the next day. And they're just expecting that people are going to keep coming to work and that packages are going to keep arriving two days after folks order, no matter the lives that have to be lost in the process.
0: And again, a lot of the times these are overwhelmingly marginalized folks, whether it be Black people, migrant folks, or disabled folks.
2: Thousands of people in Jackson, Mississippi, are still without running water following last month's unprecedented ice storm. According to a press release from Jackson City officials, quote, over the course of this crisis, 80 total water main breaks slash leaks have been reported, end quote. Since the storm, at least 80 people have died. Hundreds of thousands are dependent on bottled or boiled water, and only 51 repairs have been made by the water maintenance department. Y'all, this is the capital city of Mississippi without water.
0: All I think about is how underprepared we are for the climate crisis. Governments are going to dispose of people, they will sacrifice people with their inaction. They don't care especially in the South. I know a lot of people on Twitter, especially with what was happening in Texas, you know, they want to make fun of the South, but they forget how the policies in the South that are run by white supremacist legacies deeply impact poor, low-income, Black and Brown and Indigenous people all across Southern states. Just a very important wake-up call for all of us as we know that we're going to be reaching climate crisis very soon. Well, y'all, in more national news, an independent panel commissioned by the Aurora Colorado City Council, found that the officers who stopped and murdered 23-year-old Elijah McClain were unjustified in their actions. The report highly criticized Aurora officers, police department, and the fire department paramedics' behaviors concerning Elijah's death and the investigation that followed. According to the New York Times, the panel found that the investigation by the Aurora Police Department's major crime and homicide unit, quote, raised serious concerns for the panel and revealed significant weaknesses in the department's accountability systems, end quote. That investigation failed to ask basic critical questions and its questions frequently appeared designed to elicit specific exonerating magic language, quote unquote, found in court rulings.
1: Wow. I feel like it's very rare that they actually say on paper that something was unjustified. So I honestly wonder What happens next? Like, what are, does the police lose money?
0: Well, unfortunately, Kalia, what is being proposed is that they have de-escalation trainings and retrainings on personal sentiments in the police department and and paramedics in the city. So it basically sounds like they're going to be giving more money to police to fix the problems that we know are deeply rooted in the structure of the system itself and not any individual person.
2: Well, the lawyers in the family of Malcolm X, who was assassinated in New York City nearly 56 years ago, have released new evidence that they claim shows that the NYPD and FBI conspired in his murder. Shocker. The evidence comes in the form of a deathbed letter written by the former undercover NYPD officer Raymond Wood and released after his death by a cousin. The letter details how Wood claims to have been pressured by the supervisors to lure two of Malcolm X's security men into committing crimes that got them arrested a few days before the assassination. The arrest kept the men from doing door security at the ballroom where Malcolm was shot under the direction of my handlers, the letter states, quote, I was told to encourage
0: leaders and members of the civil rights groups to commit felonious acts, end quote. And they gaslight black and brown people where they say that the thoughts that we have surrounding a lot of the deaths of black activists and liberationists are conspiracy theories. And then it comes out decades later that we were right all along. So exactly who is keeping us safe?
1: us because if his security could have been there maybe malcolm would still be here today and raymond waited until he was on his deathbed to give his cousin permission to release this letter once he died so
0: these are not isolated incidents if it was happening then it's still happening now
1: hello well hundreds took to the streets for a rally to speak out against hate towards asian american people in new york last week waving signs that read I am not the virus, and we deserve to be safe, community members spoke out and called for investments in community-based solutions to stop xenophobic attacks. During the COVID-19 pandemic, many Asian American people have been victims of hate crimes, ranging from the defacement of Chinese-owned stores to physical attacks, such as the stabbings that occurred in Lower Manhattan. And in immigration news... All of the asylum-seeking families being detained at the Berks County Ice Jail in Pennsylvania have been released. Activists have been calling for the abolition of ice jails for years, particularly this one, which is known for its abuse of asylum seekers. So yay, we love uh, jail closing. Let's close them all. Let's get the families back together and get them out of detention.
0: And We can do that here. We can do it here. I just need people to realize, you know. Moving into international news, the BBC is reporting that parts of Brazil's Amazon forests are being illegally sold on Facebook. The protected areas include national forests and lands reserved for indigenous peoples. Some of the plots listed online are as big as 1,000 football fields. While Facebook stated that they are, quote, ready to work with local authorities, end quote, the company has indicated it will not take independent action to stop the trade. Campaigners have claimed that the country's government is unwilling to halt the sales, and many of the sellers openly admit that they do not have a land title, which is the only document that proves land ownership in Brazil. So y'all, the Amazon known as the lungs of the earth is actively being destroyed right before our very eyes. And apparently, sold on facebook sold on facebook facebook marketplace <laughs> but this is what happens on a regular basis you know with our land to be honest is is basically just sold off like this people's homes and you know these spots that have been very like critical to environmental development for centuries just get sold off for corporations profit and they, they don't care. And this is happening across the South. It's happening all across the Americas right now that indigenous people's homes are just being auctioned off. We laugh about Facebook Marketplace,
2: but it's one of the most unregulated places to do business. And that's where they exploit these types of laws and to gain land, access to resource that we don't even realize is happening and being sold from right underneath of us. Out of Nigeria, hundreds of girls who were abducted from their boarding school last week by an armed group have been released, marking the second time in less than a week that gunmen have returned kidnapped children, the New York Times reports.
0: I sometimes think the kidnapping of women and girls in African countries is a little bit sensationalized, but it's a connected struggle. When we see hundreds of Black women, Black girls disappearing, being kidnapped, in Virginia and all across the empire. So connected struggles.
1: Y'all, last June, Ahmad Erekat, a 26-year-old Palestinian, was shot and killed by Israeli forces at a checkpoint in Central West Bank after he got out of his car unarmed, following his car crashing into the checkpoint. Following the crash, the authorities refused to return his body to his family for a proper burial, as is violently customary in these scenarios. Many human rights organizations and advocates have spoken out about how the crash was an accident and this was an extrajudicial killing. On February 23rd of this year, Forensic Architecture, a British research organization based at the University of London, along with the award-winning Palestinian human rights organization Al Haq, released the results of a detailed investigation of the circumstances of Ahmad Erokrat's killing. My former professor and Ahmad's cousin, Nora Erokrat, along with Angela Davis and Muin Rabani, released an article and a video which share the findings of this investigation. Contrary to persistent Israeli claims, the report concluded that the available evidence indicates that the incident was indeed an accident and Ahmad's death was a case of an extrajudicial execution. So, we just want to send our deepest condolences to his family and to the entire community that is suffering from the loss of Ahmad.
0: Well, near the capital of Haiti, Port-au-Prince, more than 200 imprisoned people are on the run after escaping from a jail. Police, unfortunately, recaptured some people, but many are still unaccounted for. The BBC reports that witnesses heard gunfire midday last Thursday, and then prisoners were seen running from the prison soon after. Haiti, which is the homeland of the revolution and also the poorest country in the Caribbean, has witnessed many mass prison escapes before, including in 2019, where all 78 people held in the Ackland prison in southern Haiti escaped while police were distracted by anti-government protests nearby.
1: Well, y'all, that is all for our Race Capital Reframe this week. Stay tuned as we rerun our Birth of a Nation Mothers of Gynecology interview with Michelle Browder and the I Am More Than team in Montgomery, Alabama. Our conversation covered some history of racist medical research and the launch of space-making storytelling happening in the Deep South. Stay tuned.
2: You're listening to Race Capital with me, Chelsea Higgs Wise. And this week we are excited for Michelle Browder. Thank you so much for being here today.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: So, Michelle from I Am More Than is a beautiful spirit that I met a few years ago when I came to visit Montgomery. And you were one of the people that everyone said I had to meet, I had to take the tour. And I will say it was honestly the ancestors that made sure that I did not leave Montgomery again without (laughs) doing one of your tours. Our flight was canceled and you just showed up being in your space, being in your community. And someone said, this is her. And then you said, you know what? I got time. And you took us in. And you were able to give us that tour right then and there. And it was just the spirit, the welcomeness, and just the energy you brought right then. I'm so grateful to still be in community with you now in 2020 and see what you are doing there in the Deep South. So welcome to Race Capital. Thank you. Um, Tell us a little bit about I Am More Than...
3: First of all, thank you so much for having me on your wonderful show. Mm
2: -hmm. Thank you so much. I am
3: more than started about 10 years ago where uh, we organized trips for young people, you know, in these underserved communities to get outside of their immediate community and just experience something other than the typical norm. Right. Mm -hmm. So we took uh, we organized a trip to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, to watch a dynamic individual and his awesome team of attorneys argue Evan Miller versus Alabama. And we call that tour like the I Am More Than tour. And it just stuck for my students, right? And so we just, we started this initiative called I Am More Than where we want, or we want to challenge people to look at young people through a different lens in terms of, especially young Brown and Black kids. Yes, so we took a group of students, it was about 56 of them, Uh, to the United States Supreme Court to witness a court case that was argued by Brian Stevenson. It was Evan Miller versus Alabama. And I thought this would be a great time to take these young people because it was a case that was, you know, challenging the constitutionality of sentencing children to die in prison or sending at the age of 13 and 14 years old, the constitutionality of it. And I've oftentimes spoke to my students about, you know, how our consequences you know, whenever, whatever you do for every action, there's a reaction, right? And so it was just a great time. And so we went to this court case, but to see the young people engage, these young people had never been outside of Montgomery, Alabama, had never been inside a courtroom other than being sentenced. Mm -hmm. um, And then had never seen a black man argue a case. And so to see the light go off in their eyes, it was just something that was riveting. So on our way back to the Montgomery, Alabama, most of these students, we had conversations about how can we be more. You know, how do we do more? How can we be more effective in our in our households? And and a lot of them lived in. Um, what we call the projects, you know, they lived in the hood. So we uh, we debriefed about our meeting or our trip to the United States Supreme Court in the hood. And so one of the things that they said was that we want more. We want more up. And that was something that our students, you know, so it, they coined the phrase. And here we are 10 years later. I am more than we're celebrating 10 years, but we're doing it in a creative place making type of setting. Um, and so, yeah, so that's how it all started. And, and we're still thriving and hosting community events and creating art and giving tours.
1: I was Mm going
2: to say what the way that you are engaging, particularly through art storytelling. And like you said, placemaking uh, you, there were little drops of you and, and, not, not necessarily your presence specifically, but the I am more than presence all over Montgomery. Mm-hmm. And, and that was just really telling to me as someone that had been there a couple of times and, and was there to really feel the stories. Um, so I have to ask, tell us a little bit about you, about Michelle, how did you even get into the mm-hmm. space to pouring into young people like this?
3: Growing up in the rural South, um, you know, coming from Denver, Colorado, where my next door neighbors was a group of the Kinsiatas at night. It was Mr. and Mrs. Bookthong. It was a very diverse community into the South just after, you know, segregation had ended or integration had started. Living in the South next to the Kukas clan, Klan, you know, my father refused to let us feel like we were less than, you know, he refused to let us uh, fall into the stereotypes of young Black kids growing up in the rural South. And so I watched him provide opportunities and create events to expose young people around me and my friends, or not even my friends, but just young Black kids living in the same community that didn't have opportunity to go to Atlanta or DC or Philadelphia. And my father created those experiences for us. And it just, I I got it from him. And he was the first black prison chaplain that was appointed by George Wallace. I got those stories from him, the stories of being resilient. And so I would have to say it's, it's part of my DNA uh, mm-hmm. to work with young people. And it's been my life's work
2: for the past 30 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you talk about your work specifically, what does that look like as yeah. a, a black woman business owner? What is has what this growth and this journey been like for you?
3: Yeah. You know, growing up again in the rural South where I was kicked out of school constantly uh, for fighting. I didn't like being called the N-word, the B-word. I didn't understand what it was. You know, why are you calling me that? That is not who I am. And as an artist, you know, my father uh, gave me eight tubes of paint and some T-shirts one day because I got suspended from my last suspension. And he said, you're not going to sit here and watch Oprah Winfrey all day. I want you to take time to think about your life and what you're going to do with it and how you're going to make your mark on this planet. He said, because if not, I'm gonna find you in Tutwiler. And Tutwiler Prison is a mm-hmm. prison here in Montgomery, Alabama with all women's prison. And I had been there with him because I'm a daddy's girl. I would go to the prisons with my father. And I was like, I don't wanna do that. I don't wanna you know, waste my life in and out of prison because I can't control myself. So what I started doing was um, uh, creating artwork from the t-shirts that my father gave me during my suspension, and it turned into entrepreneurship. I've always had my own business. I've always been able to use my work, um, my my artwork, as a way to uh, live. And so I find it now in in my work today in terms of storytelling. Uh, if you want to, if you want to remember, or you know, I call it regurgitation. I regurgitate everything that I learn onto a canvas, and a lot of it, um, you know, again has been used. Uh, Several places, including here in Montgomery, but it's just um, it's it's just a tool that I've been using to either cope or to get a message across in storytelling. Mm
2: -hmm. So yesterday was a pretty big day for you. Tell Race Capital listeners a little bit about your most recent work.
3: Learning about the history of Montgomery, the iconography. You know, Mm -hmm. I've been studying it for a long time, and there are three women. In our history, actually, there are eleven um, that's been noted, but three in particular that were experimented on um, numerous times by James Marion and Sims. And I've always wanted to elevate and amplify their voices, mm-hmm. and so there's only one way to do it, especially now in this era where everyone is talking about, you know, removing statues. You you should know because you all are are right there in the heart of it. <laughs> And I said, you know, I don't want to focus my energy. I'm not going to pay the state $25,000 to remove a statue that they put up. Hmm. What we would like to do is to erect the mothers of gynecology. So if you're a woman, if you've had a pat smear, you need to thank Anarcha Lucy and Betsy and the, the other mothers. So right now, my work today is to create a public art that speaks to the pain, the anguish, but also the resiliency of these women. Mm-hmm. and that's what happened on yesterday we un- unveiled our plans the space where they will uh reside hopefully f- until the next era
2: okay so let's break down everything that you just said to make sure that we're following what you're you're doing right now is truly retelling not just a, a us story but a story worldwide that's impacted women You mentioned women that were experimented on and you said some names, Anarka, Betsy and Lucy. Can you tell us a little bit more about these women?
3: Yeah, they were enslaved. And typically during the time of enslavement, uh, these women, especially Antarctica, they were young women, right? They were, some of them were teenagers, just children at the time. So with Anarka, with enslaved women, you know, they were subjects but they were also sexual subjects so a lot of them had been raped and they were becoming pregnant and so ann being 17 years old was brought to james marion sims which was a doctor uh that would use experimentations to try to cure what is called a vaginal fistulas which was a tear in the bladder and the vagina and it, it would cause a leakage
2: you mentioned that James Sims was the doctor that experimented on these women. And this is why it's so important that you're retelling this story because right now he's known as the father of gynecology, correct? Right, absolutely. But in essence, what he was,
3: he tortured these women. Right. I account I, I him to be that of Frankenstein, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the doctor of Frankenstein. Um, where he would have dreams about procedures that he could use and literally would get up in the middle of the night and go to the backyard of his house and find one of these women and would experiment on them. You know, he would dream about how could I fix this fistula, right? And he would get up, go find the women and commence to trying to take his idea and make it so and
2: so you're saying that these women were enslaved under his watch and absolutely and they were accessible to him for Mm -hmm. medical experimentation what year was this happening from
3: the 1840s until about 1855 until when he started his hospital in new york
2: Remembering the time for our listeners that this is the time of enslavement. And I would imagine these women did not have anesthesia with these types of procedures.
3: Absolutely not.
2: not. And that's
3: why it was torturous. Mm
2: -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about, about these women. Um, Well, and, and to also give a a little bit more of a picture for the listeners that these women were experimented on multiple times without anesthesia.
3: Without anesthesia. Right. Um, And I'm sorry because
2: I'm so excited
3: about being able to amplify their voices that sometimes I do forget that it was the anesthesia. You know, I I liken it to um, yesterday, I talked about how, you know, for the men, for you to understand what we're trying to say is imagine being circumcised, the foreskin being peeled off of your private parts Mm -hmm. without anesthesia Mm -hmm. as a grown man. and Because, you know, they do that to them as children. Right, But if you're a grown man experiencing that, if you could imagine that type of pain.
2: But you, mean, you mentioned later on in his practice, he moved to New York. My understanding is that, and what it appears to be, and tell me if I'm wrong, that he exploited these women, he quote unquote perfected the procedure, and then ran up to the North to provide it mm-hmm. to rich, mm-hmm. wealthier white women.
3: Absolutely. But he also continued his research on immigrant women. So anything that's, you know, that you could discard mm. basically, mm. but yet we celebrate it.
2: And he has, uh, he had several monuments up across the United States, as again, mentioned and celebrated as the father of gynecology. So now we have mm-hmm. Michelle Browder down in Montgomery celebrating a different message and and different leadership and different stories when we're talking about how, we really came about to save ourselves. Yeah,
3: the launch yesterday,
2: I'm still a little weepy, like
3: everyone that was there, yeah, so members of the community were there. Um, mayor Stephen Reed, the first black mayor of Montgomery, came, gave a wonderful speech. Uh, we had county you know Montgomery county commissioners that came, the only female commissioner basically said that she was going to support the project and that we would get more support as time goes. And then, but my students, I have this one student who, by the way, is homeless. And um, she called me, she was like, you know, I, want, I really want to get involved with some things. So she's an opera singer. And when I tell you this young lady saying, how did we get here? We opened up with a song by Fannie Lou Hamner, who sung, uh, it was a recording, the songs that my mother taught me. And we opened up with that song. And you know, Fannie Lou, and it was so poignant because she was, uh, there was a first forced sterilization on Fannie Lou. So we wanted her, we wanted to usher in her presence uh, because she too has suffered, you know, under uh, this thing called white supremacy. And it was just a beautiful day. You could feel the ancestors, you could feel their presence. It's a holy and sacred ground. And there was not a dry eye. We look forward to Mother's Day of 2021
2: the erection of mothers of gynecology. Mm. Um, what is the rise of the mothers of Montgomery really going to look and feel like? Mm. Well,
3: you can go online and, and take a look at it at lucy And that's B-E-T-S-E-Y. So the look of the monument, 15 feet tall, along with bricks that will uphold her. So in in the bricks, some of the bricks that we are interfacing into the designs are bricks that were made by enslaved African women um, during the 1850. Um, And so the monuments themselves are made out of found art or uh, found objects, metal. And so they will be welded together, but the facial features are definitely that of black women And Arca has been noted to be, as they call Blotto. So she was of mixed race and she has braids in her hair. And the facial features is that of her looking up with this agonizing pain on her face, but yet you see the hope, you could feel the hope. And so, and Arca, Lucy, and Betsy, all of them have very strong features, but again, the piece is going to be made out of found objects. We're going to different recycling places to find them. And then our lead consultant is uh, Dana Albrecht. She's out of San Francisco and she's a Burning Man artist. I don't know if you've ever heard of Bernie Man before, but they have this big festival every year and she's going to you know, bring some pieces that we've acquired to Montgomery and we're going to assemble them and we're welcoming women to come and be a part of the welding process. And so if you have something Uh, that your mother had or something that you that's sacred to you that you want to memorialize people are going to be able to bring metal objects and we'll weld them into the bodies of these women so it's really quite incredible
2: what an amazing opportunity for so many people to engage in such a permanent fixture that is going to mean so much to so many people tell us a little bit about where the monument is going to be located
3: so it's interesting, interesting that you say that because it's located literally two blocks from the National Memorial of Peace and Justice. Um, and then about a mile and a half from where Anarca was held captive on the plantation. It's called the, the Westcott's Plantation. So she, w- the uh, monument will face in the direction of the monument, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, and also uh, where the plantation where she lived Uh, as an enslaved woman.
2: And for folks that may not immediately recognize the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, that is the lynching memorial that most folks uh, otherwise known it as. Um, And Mm -hmm. also uh, EJI is run by Brian Stevenson, who Michelle mentioned earlier. So it sounds like, Michelle, you have been working for a long time in space that has been working on its own for a long time that we know in history, but even, even today, and I'm so excited to have you on and tell you how you are doing that. So continue to tell us a little bit about the space as well. Yes, the
3: space is so this is a three phase project, Uh, the first phase of the project is to erect this monument. um, In honor of the mothers, but then there's also a second phase so on the property, we have a space where people can actually come stay for a week stay for two weeks learn this history bring your retreats bring students to, to really get a Highlander school type of experience. And when I say Highlander School, that's the school where Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, you know, Abernathy, this is a place where people would go to be fed, nourished, and taught the spirit of nonviolence. And we want to create that here as well, because once you're out there, you know, you're on the front lines, you're talking about marijuana justice, you're talking about, you know, you have your causes, but then sometimes we're disappointed when we do see the AG uh, letting murderers go. So you need to be recharged, you need to be refreshed. So there's a place here on campus that will have that for folks come here get rejuvenated and then there's a resource center also so there's it's three phases but this is just one phase that we're trying to um, uh, let the world know about and how people can be a part of that and then we'll go on from there but it's called the more campus and you know it's it's going to be a sacred space for people to heal to acknowledge to reckon with this history and then also be empowered to keep going keep up the good fight.
2: Mm-hmm. So Michelle, tell us why now? Why are you doing this right now?
3: Well, it seems like the time is right, you know. So you could yeah. have—I had a vision ten years ago, but everything in due season. There's a time to weep, a time to cry, a time to laugh, a time to sing, a time to a time to mourn. I think mm-hmm. that right now is the time to reckon. With the history of what's happening in our country, um, and and uh, yeah, I tell people all the time, thank you, Donald Trump, for pulling the veil off of my eyes because I'm thinking after you know we got we had a black president, but this stuff was steeped in. It, it's still here. It's very much. And so now the you know the sentiment is that it's okay to come out. It's okay to you know stop your children from selling water. It's okay to talk to people in a demeaning way. So I'm grateful because now I know who my neighbor is. Mm-hmm. And so, and with this conversation, the monument conversation 10 years ago, it was not happening on the level now that it is. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're here now.
2: And I, I really love this, the engagement plan that you have with people all across the country. Um, tell us a little mm-hmm. bit more if they are interested in sending something. You mentioned that people can get involved if they come down and want something welded and also how we can continue to birth the story. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, you said, you know, send, send something.
3: You can actually, if it's something small that we can have grafted into the bodies of these women, you know, you may have something that your mother gave you that you may want to honor her, right? And so i tell you a prime example, a woman sent me some buttons and she said, these buttons are from the, from the 1800s. Will you consider putting them in the bodies of these women. We have pennies that we're gonna have welded inside. Yes. So there's there's a whole We have the actual stems retractor, the instruments that were used that he, yes, that will be welded in the bodies of these women. So mm-hmm. yeah, if you can also come and help us weld her, we're gonna have classes here. And it's a form of healing, it's a form of a community, you know, to, mm-hmm. to come together as women. We've gone through so much. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. a time for us to have conversations against the light skin and the dark skin and how we're going to kill that division amongst black and brown women, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we're just, it, you will get more information as time goes on, but we're hoping that women from around the country will come and lay down, take your shoes off, cry, get, let, let this be a time for healing, but also creatively having these courageous conversations about race in America.
2: Yeah, yeah. And
3: what our charge is to
2: keep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Speaking of our charge to keep, uh, right here in Race Capital, Mm -hmm. we ask every guest that we invite on our platform, what is your privilege and how do you use it to dismantle the myth and work of white supremacy?
3: Yeah, my privilege is that I'm Black and I'm a woman and I'm a creative I have three privileges, actually. I'm a black creative woman that lives in the South. Mm-hmm. And I am using it um, to dismantle racism by encouraging people to wear, a to take off their biases, especially in and 95% of my tours are with white folk. Mm. And so I have the privilege of telling people like heads of Jamie diamonds. We need to do something about allowing black women and just people of color access to the table. Give me, show me how to fish and then let me fish. You mm. understand? And so I, my privilege is to be able to stand before power and speak truth to it,
1: mm. Mm.
3: bottom line. And it's all because of uh, the, what has happened here in the South that I'm able to do that.
2: Right. I. Definitely cannot let you get out of here without also um, shouting out your tours. How can people find out more about your tours if they're coming down to Montgomery or, you know, even uh, what are you doing right now with COVID? How can people support? Yes. So my number is
3: 334-296-3024 and or you can log online and find us. I I love a phone call. People are like, I called the lady the other day. She was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm talking to you. I was like, girl, let's get on this phone. I can't see you. But we have virtual tours now. We have virtual tours and we have a tour, a virtual tour of an arca, Lucy and Betsy. So I would love for people to support the monument in that manner. Take a tour you mm-hmm. go online to anarchalucybetsy.org and take the tour. I'll send you a t-shirt in a box. It comes with, and with the tour comes this actual, um, you get hidden gems of Montgomery. Mm-hmm. You get a piece of art, a shard of glass, some cotton and some glasses, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, that's one way that they can support it.
2: And how, where is this website? Give it to them one more time.
3: Okay, it's Antarca. That's A N A c8 wait anarcha how do you spell that? a-n-a-r-c-h-a <laughs> anarcha lucy betsy and that's b-e-t-s-e-y.org and you should see a tour tab and or if you want to purchase a brick in honor of a loved one you can do that as well or buy a t-shirt um but we encourage you to take the tour because also on this tour you'll learn about my family aurelia browder
2: mm. whom people
3: don't talk about uh everyone knows rosa But very few people know of Aurelia Browder, and she was one of the heroines of the civil rights movement, you get a chance to learn a little bit more about her and the tour is only 36 minutes, Mm -hmm. um, but it comes with a boatload of information and then hidden gems uh, of Montgomery that ties you into the fabric of who we are here.
2: What an amazing legacy that we have on our line right now with Race Capital. Michelle Browder, thank you so much for coming on and joining us, telling us about Anarcha Lucy and Betsy, the monument that you are building at Montgomery. People can find out more at anarchalucybetsy.org. Find the information, the website and Our episode description and you can continue to follow michelle browder at uh where can people find you on social media michelle
3: uh right now it's at i am more than and the number one on instagram Mm
0: -hmm.
3: uh we do have an, an arca Lucy betsy instagram that's coming up soon but we're on facebook more than tours too uh you can also book your tours there if you like so yeah, we're just Google the name and it'll pop up. But for the most part, our website is more than tours.us.
2: Okay, great. And look, Michelle said Google me, okay. And you will find <laughs> the work. You will find how to find her and get you torn. <laughs> and uh, truly no, you are you are truly not hard to find at all. Um on the interwebs not- or <laughs> or in person down at Montgomery. <laughs> Well, thank you so much again, Michelle. Um, Thank you so much for being here. And we hope to have you back on as the project continues. Thank
3: you so much. And thank you. Please let your listeners know that you're one of my doulas.
2: Yes. Oh, so
3: you're a support. So tell us what a doula is really quickly. So a doula, so, you know, during childbirth, Black women needed support. They needed midwives. They needed, so a doula is a support during childbirth. So Mm -hmm. I'm in, I'm, you know, I'm having a baby. We're having a baby. We're having triplets and I need support. I need someone to say, Michelle, you push. You keep going. Even (laughs) though, you know what I'm saying? Girl, squat, squat. You know, back in, in Africa, there's, you would sit and have the baby. Mm -hmm. in america they make you lay down or you know put your back so no we need some doulas we need some some brothers and sisters that'll say yes i'll sponsor a brick yes i'll host you on my radio show yes i'll tell my friends to take your tour or you know all of that is being a support and a help Mm. to birth this baby and I'm, i'm looking for for black folks and people of color to help us do this you understand so that that's what a doula is and that's what you've done for us today so thank you so much chelsea thank you
2: Absolutely. Well, Race Capital is excited to host this story on the platform and myself as an individual is I'm more than honored and excited to be a doula. Are you looking for more doulas or what, how, how can others? Absolutely. Vote? And they can find yeah, out absolutely. more about that. We're
3: looking for Yeah, we're looking for 5,000 doulas. That's right. 5,000 doulas. And we're asking people to buy a brick. We, Chelsea, can I just say this, that we're really wanting to do this in a grassroots movement, right? Because if it's grassroots, then I don't have to worry about putting somebody else's name Mm -hmm. on an anarchist space. You understand like naming rights and you know, oh sure, I'll give you a million dollars if you just change this to the whatever arena or you know what no, we want to be able to say this is for the people. These are for the women that have gone before us and for the ones today. We want Sabrina Fulton. We want the mothers to have a break, the mothers who have gone through uh, losing their children. And you know what I'm saying? So, this is a way where people can get involved. And again, if you go to the website, you will see that you could be one in 5,000.
2: I've got my glasses, I've got my box, yes! I've got my teeth. You got your shirt? Uh huh. So it's a real deal. You can continue to follow yeah, really? Michelle and just and pop into our Gmail, racecapital at gmail.com, or any of our uh, social media platforms to find out how you can connect more with what Michelle is doing. Um, I'm excited to know all of that good information and yeah. really excited that you are back here on my platform. And Richmond, the fallen capital of the Confederacy, has had quite a year with monuments and yes quite a year and like you said that we we also chose not to spend thousands of dollars on monuments being taken down if we couldn't help it
1: Mm -hmm.
2: in fact we the people chose to just take them down at our own will and that's what we did. And it, it's been really exciting now to dream about what these spaces will look like, you know, and and that's what exactly mm-hmm. what you are doing now is, is allowing us to expand our imagination of how to tell other stories yes. in different and creative ways. And so that's, this mm-hmm. is really the ancestors bringing us together at the end of this year 2020. <laughs> One capital of the Confederacy to another from do black women Mm -hmm. across the South doing this work. Uh, We thank you, Michelle. And we'll catch you next time on race capital. And that was our interview with Michelle Browder with I Am More Than out of Montgomery, Alabama. As we're thinking about our place and space of Richmond, Virginia, in a time where we're seeing the current disparities in public health outcomes with the COVID-19 crisis, it really brings into question the academic and medical institutions in Richmond. Virginia Columbus University, who will likely receive millions in grant and research funding over the next few years. We know that our institutions have a legacy of unethical testing on Black and immigrant non-men dating back to slavery, including using forced sterilization and other violent testing tactics, even here at VCU and John Hopkins in Baltimore.
0: We recommend reading a book called Medical Apartheid by Harriet A. Washington, which discusses how the practice of medically experimenting on Black people has been around since the inception of U.S. empire. It's been a particular practice that has plagued Black people and disabled people in the antebellum South. And if you look from the Tuskegee experiment to even forced sterilization, which had been happening in the South well into the late 1970s, you'll see that it's always been the most marginalized people being tied to these beds and operated on. In total, 7,325 individuals were sterilized in Virginia alone under sterilization law. Of those sterilized, about half were deemed mentally ill and the other half deemed mentally deficient. Approximately 62% of total individuals sterilized were assigned female at birth. During the time of sterilization, 22% of those sterilized were Black.
1: And this is still happening in our country as ICE continues to perform forced sterilizations inside detention centers. Just a few weeks ago, our comrades from Richmond joined folks in D.C. protesting these acts of violence. As we bring to light the legacy of medical violence with stories like those of Anarka, Lucy, and Betsy, realize that there is certainly a connection between the Black community's mistrust of medical research and Western medicine, and that it is a valid concern. We lift the names of Henrietta Lacks, Fannie Lou Hamer, and so many Black women, non-binary, and trans people who have come before us and experienced the violence of Western medicine and who have left a legacy of healing and survival. Ashe. And this has been Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. Tune in next Wednesday at 10 a.m. for our next episode. It's gonna be all right, cause it's been wrong for far too
3: long. Hey, I said it's gonna be all right, cause it's been wrong for far too long. Hey, it's gonna be all right, cause it's been wrong for far too long. Far too long, far too long, far too long. Hey, 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 I said it's gonna be alright, cause it's been wrong for far too long. Hey, hey I said it's gonna be alright. Cause it's been wrong for far too long. Hey, 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 it's gonna be all right. Cause it's been wrong for far too long. Far too long. Far too long. Far too long. Hey, hey, hey.